0: This podcast contains graphic content and discusses themes of violence. Listener discretion is strongly advised. 2323 Washington Boulevard in Ogden, Utah, was home to the hi-fi shop owned by Ogden resident Brent Richardson. Nestled in a strip mall with Morgan Jewelers and Dollhouse Shoe Store, the hi-fi shop was a popular electronics store known for selling high-end, and high fidelity, per the shop's name, stereo equipment. Ogden, a town of around 30,000 in the late 1970s, was a railroad town home to the now historic Union Station. With Prohibition having made the rounds in the 1910s, Ogden became known for its bootlegged alcohol, underground speakeasies, gambling, and prostitution. It's alleged that even Al Capone considered the town to be too dangerous for him. As time went on, crime grew and steadied as it continued to do in the 1970s. Although the town was growing, this remained the case, as is evident by that fateful night of the Hi-Fi murders in 1974. I'm Jen Hansen, and you're listening to The Living. The closing shift at Hi-Fi for 20-year-old Stanley Walker and 18-year-old Michelle Ansley started out like any other on the night of April 22nd, 1974. Spring was in the air, and the pair were eager to close up shop and head home that Monday night, especially since they were both covering shifts for other co-workers. Michelle, who had just been hired to work at Hi-Fi that week, was recently engaged to her boyfriend. As the sun set and neared closer to dark, 16-year-old Byron Nesbitt, who went by his middle name Courtney, entered through the front doors of Hi-Fi to thank Stanley for letting him park at the shop while he ran errands nearby. It was around 6 p.m. as Stanley and Michelle chatted with Courtney while they carried out their nightly duties, and before they could lock up the store, three men with guns entered. While one man went straight to stealing equipment and loading it into a van outside, the other two ordered Michelle, Stanley, and Courtney into the basement. The trio were placed face-down on the floor, hands and feet bound with electrical wire, and duct tape placed over their mouths. The man who stayed upstairs robbing the shop loaded out approximately $24,000 worth of high-end stereo equipment. As time dragged on, Michelle, Stanley, and Courtney grew increasingly terrified, and Stanley's parents began to worry. At 8 p.m., Stanley's father, Orrin Walker... Made the trip from their family home to the hi fi shop, concerned that his son hadn't come home yet. Parked around back where the employees would exit after their shift, Oren noticed the back door was ajar. As he pulled the door open to search the shop for Stanley, he was met face to face with one of the gunmen and ordered into the basement. Bound the same way with electrical wire and duct tape over his mouth, Oren had unwittingly become a fourth hostage but it would only be another ten minutes before there was a fifth. Carol Nesbitt, Courtney's mother, had also come looking for her son. Following the same steps Oren had taken as she saw all the parked cars in the employee lot, she was found by one of the gunmen and bound and laid face down like all the others. While the robber upstairs completed his task and sped off in one of two getaway cars, the two gunmen in the basement attempted to plot their escape. Knowing the five had seen their faces, they agreed they'd have to be killed to delay or avoid altogether being identified. Once the decision was agreed upon by the two, there was no going back. A bottle of liquid drain cleaner was produced. The duct tape over each mouth was removed, and all except Michelle were made to drink it one at a time. The men told the hostages they were giving them vodka and sleeping pills. However, burns and blisters immediately broke out on the mouths of Stanley, Courtney, and Carol. Oren, being the last to consume the liquid, and seeing the convulsions the other three had suffered, covertly let the drain cleaner leak out of the side of his mouth to avoid swallowing as the others had. The liquid seeped under the side of his head and caused burns to his face as he laid on the floor. Unwilling to leave while their victims were still alive, The pair decided to pour more drain cleaner into their mouths before reapplying duct tape to ensure it would stay down this time, but the liquid carotid the tape, again allowing it to be thrown up. Waiting and watching to be sure their victims died, the two became increasingly agitated at how long the deaths were taking. In an attempt to speed things up, they decided the quickest and most surefire way would be to shoot them. One of the men, reported as being too afraid to take part in the shooting, went upstairs to wait, while the other took the task upon himself. Carol was the first to go. With the man standing over her as she laid on the floor completely defenseless, she was shot in the back of the head. Courtney was next, followed by Stanley and then Oren, each of them pleading for their lives before receiving the blows. Michelle was taken into another room, forced to strip off her clothes, and was raped. When she was returned to the room with the others, she was shot wearing only her socks. The man, now a killer, noticed Stanley was still breathing and shot him a second time. Oren, still alive and conscious, did his best to play dead. This was noticed, however, and the gunman, who had run out of bullets at this point, attempted to strangle him with electrical cord. According to court records, quote, By carefully tensing the muscles of his neck, was Oren able to survive the strangulation attempt while still playing dead, quote. When it was noticed that he was still alive, Oren, laying on his back with his bleeding head on the floor, had a ballpoint pen kicked into his ear. It was forced five inches deep, according to reporting done by the Herald newspaper out of Provo, Utah, and exited internally through his throat. Even more shocking still, Oren was able to remain from flinching or crying out in pain as he felt each kick of the pen, which finally convinced his would be killer that he was dead. Approximately four hours after the ordeal began, Oren's wife came looking for her husband and son, along with their other son, Lynn. As Oren heard the voice of Lynn from upstairs, he knew the assailants were gone and that hope was on the horizon. He called out, prompting Lynn to kick the door down, and the police were called. But without knowing the true horror that lay in the basement, the police responded to what they only knew as unknown trouble before witnessing the brutal murders and assaults that had taken place in the basement of the hi-fi shop. Stanley Walker had died. In Oren's testimony in court, he said of his son's death, quote, I guess you just know your kids. I could tell when Stan stopped breathing, end quote. Michelle Ansley had also died. Carol, Courtney, and Oren were still alive. Clinging to her last breath until she was out of the shop basement, Carol died on the way to the hospital. Courtney wound up in a coma that would last five weeks, only to be followed by five months in the ICU. The Washington Post reported, quote, it took six operations and medical bills of more than $90,000 before Courtney recovered, end quote. Courtney would spend the rest of his life suffering the consequences of this attack, including blindness in his right eye, paralysis on his right side, and loss of part of his stomach and esophagus lining. The drain cleaner caused peritonitis, which is inflammation of the inner wall of your abdomen. This creates abdominal pain, frequent vomiting, diarrhea, and fever, all caused by the drain cleaner. Courtney was still hospitalized when the trial began and was unable to provide testimony. He also suffered some amnesia, disabling him from being able to identify the perpetrators. Oren suffered extreme damage to his eardrum and was left with scarring on his face from the drain cleaner. When police entered the basement, the terror became immediately clear. All on-duty officers were called to assist and every lab tech and crime scene specialist in the county was called to the scene. Oren, conscious and able to assist detectives, gave police a description of the two men, noting that one spoke with a Caribbean accent. It didn't take long before police had suspects. The following afternoon, April 23rd, two young boys had been digging for soda bottles in a Hill Air Force Base dumpster near Leighton, Utah, when they found the wallets of Michelle and Courtney. As news of the crime had been broadcast everywhere, the boys recognized the names on the IDs and immediately took them to police. With this new evidence in hand, police visited the base and set to check out the rest of the dumpster contents to see what else could be found. As their search was underway, a base officer informed detectives that two men in the barracks were fidgety, pacing, and all-around nervous. When asked for a description of the men, detectives were told, among the fact that they were young African-American men who were helicopter mechanics, that one spoke with a distinct Caribbean accent. Given permission to search the barracks, detectives went straight for the rooms of 21-year-old Dale S. Pierre and 19-year-old William Andrews. The men were asked to leave their rooms while the search took place to look for evidence. And evidence was found. A list with names of various electronic shops, a seeming hit list, which included hi-fi, was found along with plastic wrap from records that had the Hi-Fi logo sticker. Although while damning, this wasn't enough for an arrest. However, on the way out, one detective decided to pull up the carpet in Dale's room, and what he found would change the investigation. A receipt for a storage unit, which had been rented the day before the murders, was found. This was enough to arrest Dale and William with cause to believe that this storage unit housed the stolen items, along with the additional evidence recovered and a matching description from Orrin. Had all that not been enough, upon arrest, Dale was found with a key in his pocket to the storage unit. When detectives visited the storage facility the following day, April 24th, the owner of the place positively identified Dale as the one who rented the unit. Armed with a search warrant, detectives opened the unit and found the holy grail of evidence. Not only was all of the stolen hi-fi equipment accounted for, with fingerprints on it from Dale and William, but a bottle of drain cleaner also stored in the unit would be the nail in the coffin. In addition, witnesses provided description of the van used as the getaway which was identified as belonging to William inside drain cleaner was found spilled on the mats proving it had been brought with them and indicating premeditation on November 16, 1974 just 7 months after the arrests Dale S. Pierre and William Andrews were tried together in the deaths of Michelle Ansley, Courtney Nesbitt, and Stanley Walker, and the attempted murders of Orrin Walker and Courtney Nesbitt. An all-white jury would decide the fate of three young Black men, which caused outrage within the Black community. According to reporting done from the Chicago Tribune, less than 1% of Utah residents at the time of the trial were Black, with whites making up 94% of the population. In fact, there was a single black person within the jury pool, but he was dismissed before jury selection even began. Word eventually got out one day that on a lunch break during trial, a napkin had been passed around amongst the jurors of a stick figure with a noose around its neck. It was accompanied by a racial slur. The defense called for a mistrial, but the motion was rejected by the judge. In each appeal for both William and Dale, this motion continued to be upheld by appeals courts, including all the way up to the Supreme Court. William's defense team argued with vigor against the death penalty during trial, leaning heavily on the fact that he wasn't the one to pull the trigger. He did, however, administer the drain cleaner, a move the duo admitted was inspired by the movie Magnum Force, which aired on the base not long before the murders. An employee of the base testified at trial about William's involvement, recalling William telling him, quote, One of these days I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop, and if anybody gets in the way, I'm going to kill them, end quote. Officer Delroy White, who worked the case, also testified, quote, Andrews was the brains behind the whole ordeal, the one who organized it. Pierre was the enforcer, end quote. Let's take a moment here to talk about the use of the drain cleaner in these crimes. The fact that the idea came from a movie, in which the victim given the drain cleaner to drink died as a result of it, Shed some light on the psychology behind the motive. Dr. Nigel Barber, a biopsychologist, says that copying violent acts found in media can be a way to depersonalize and separate themselves from their acts. Of the depersonalization, Dr. Barber says, quote, It helps account for uncharacteristically violent actions, whether the context is a riot, warfare, or rampage killing. Back to the trial. Oren Walker testified that Williams stated, in the basement that fateful night, that he was, quote, too scared to shoot them and left the shop. Dale, on the other hand, Oren recalls as having pranced around the room after each shooting, displaying a sense of excitement and pride in the murders. Dr. Catherine Ramsland, a forensic psychologist, interviewed forensic psychiatrist Dr. Michael Stone for an article in Psychology Today titled All Things Truly Wicked. Dr. Stone's work in the field of forensic psychiatry led him to write a book called The Anatomy of Evil, in which he details a way to measure evil on a scale that he created called The Gradation of Evil. This scale consists of 22 categories of murderers, with one being justifiable homicide with no psychopathic traits and increasing in shock, horror, and psychopathy up to Category 22, which Dr. Stone classifies as, quote, murder after prolonged torture of the most heinous type, end quote. According to Dr. Stone's scale, there are two categories Dale and William might fit in. The first would be number 10, classified as in-the-way killers. These are people who kill to get rid of witnesses and typically do not involve premeditation. Although we know the drain cleaner was brought with them to the scene, we also know Dale and William feared being identified for the robbery. Category 14 on the gradation of evil scale is classified as schemers. These are the killers who intend to deceive, steal, or otherwise con their victims, and will stop at nothing to complete their task. Going back to the base officer's testimony during trial, we know William had planned to carry out this robbery without anyone getting in the way. Despite the best attempts from the defense at trial, the all-white jury found both Dale and William guilty. Dale, who, as a side note, had changed his name 27 times during trial, settled on and became Pierre Dale Selby, was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder and given three death sentences. He was executed in August of 1987 by lethal injection after having served just 13 years. William was also sentenced to death on three counts of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated robbery. He served time in prison for 18 years before his lethal injection in 1992. Keith Roberts, who was identified as the getaway driver, was sentenced to five years to life on two counts of robbery. He served 13 years before being released on parole. After his release, he moved out of state and qualified for mail-in parole status. The NAACP, Amnesty International, and the ACLU all rallied behind the appeals for William and Pierre, citing the unmistakable racial bias among the all-white jury. This was not the only reason for the support of William and Pierre— Court briefs that Williams' defense team filed cited numerous recent murders in Utah committed by white men who were spared the death penalty. This included, but was not limited to that of Joseph Paul Franklin, who was sentenced to life for killing two young black men at Liberty Park in 1980. Joseph admitted during trial that they were shot because they were black. Even a request from Pope John Paul II for a stay of execution for William was denied. At the time of sentencing, the option to give life without parole was not an option, according to reporting done by Dirk Johnson for the New York Times. When asked for a retrial to retroactively give this option to jurors, it was denied. William's lawyer, Tim Ford, said about William, quote, During the trial, people in Utah looked at Bill Andrews and only saw a scary-looking black guy. They didn't see a scared 19-year-old kid, end quote. Dirk Johnson also spoke with William Andrews over the phone in 1992. Of the night of the hi-fi murders, William said, quote, I did pour the Drano into the cup, but it was not with the intent of using it to kill people. In hindsight, I don't know what I was thinking. I was only 19. So, how big of a role did an all white jury play in not only criminally convicting, but racially convicting Pierre, Dale, Selby, and William Andrews? According to a study done in 2006 by psychologist Dr. Samuel R. Summers, juries that included both white and black members were shown to be more racially sensitive. In the study, 29 groups were divided into either white-only or diverse jury groups and shown a 30-minute case video wherein a black defendant was charged with sexually assaulting white victims. One all-white group unanimously reached a guilty verdict. Most of the all-white groups failed to mention racism in their discussions at all. Of the diverse groups, however, it was found there were more accurate statements made, the facts of the case were more closely examined, and resistance to discussing racism was nearly non-existent. In 2015, The New Republic reporter Spencer Amder wrote in an article titled, The Supreme Court Takes on an All-White Jury, that in 1986, the case of Batson versus Kentucky compelled the Supreme Court to eliminate peremptory strikes, which the article explains as, quote, The prosecution and defense each get to strike a certain number of jurors, for any reason at all, on a hunch that the juror will not be sympathetic to their case, end quote. These peremptory strikes, as you may have guessed, Have a history rooted in racism and are often used to eliminate black jurors when the defendant is black and especially when the victims are white. While there is no doubt that Pierre Dale Selby and William Andrews were guilty, the question remains where do we draw the line between life without the chance of parole and the death penalty? Better yet, how did a community fail to protect the victims and the perpetrators? It's a little known fact that Pierre was out on parole for a car theft when the murders took place. At what point do we need to reevaluate the entire system that is meant to protect criminals from their victims and themselves? Pierre's final words when asked while strapped to a gurney were, "Quote" Thank you. I just want to say my prayers. William lifted his head from the gurney, smiled at his family, and mouthed the words, I love you. Deseret News reports that when asked his last words, William said, Thank those who tried so hard to keep me alive. I hope they continue to fight for equal justice after I'm gone. Tell my family goodbye, and I love them. Kim Thompson, director of the State Division of Institutional Operations, carried on the conversation, asking, quote, This has been a long haul for you, hasn't it? To which William replied, Yes, I'm actually very tired. After one last deep breath, he lifted his head again, and his last words were a last I love you to his family. Oren Walker lived with the emotional aftermath of the hi-fi torture and murders until his death in 2000. Before his death, Oren, in what could only be considered either a great irony or an incredible fight to take back what was taken from him, worked at Hill Air Force Base and retired in 1985 to own an electronics store. Courtney Nesbitt studied computer science at both Weber State University and the University of Utah before going on to also work at Hill Air Force Base as a computer programmer, living with relatives until his death from his brain injury complications in 2002. Both of their lives were revered as heroic, and their will to live was nothing short of inspiring. Michelle Ansley left behind both parents and new fiancé. Her young life was tragically cut short before she could experience any of the world that she dreamed of seeing. Carol Nesbitt was a prominent member of her community, assisting her husband, Dr. Byron Nesbitt, in the Weber County Medical Auxiliary Committee before her death. She left behind Courtney, as well as her son, Lynn, Who alerted the police to the dangers in the basement of Hi-Fi. Stanley Walker, a student at Weber State University and a basketball coach for his ward at the Church of Latter-day Saints, left behind his father Oren and his mother Joyce. Thank you so much for tuning in to the second episode of The Living Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, Please subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen. If you're feeling extra generous, a rating and review would be so very appreciated. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram at The Living Podcast, at my Facebook page, The Living Podcast, or on Twitter at the Pod. Feel free to send me a message with your thoughts on the racial and social issues surrounding the convictions. I'm still trying to figure out a good release schedule while I'm in school to actually study forensic psychology, so bear with me and stay tuned because I will be bringing you a brand new case. But in the meantime, remember. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about.